So thank you, thank you for the invitation. I mean, it was it's a challenging uh, conference at least for me. So I will talk a little bit about Aristotle, and um, what I will do is to talk about uh, the relevance of Aristotle's uh, remarks about uh, metaperception. My aim in this presentation is twofold, if you wish. I mean, I, I wish to compare Aristotle's view about self-knowledge of sensory experience, I mean, the way we know of our own visual, auditory, tactile, and so on experiences, uh, with uh, three very schematic uh, models that can be that can be found in the contemporary literature, philosophy of mind, and epistemology. And I will eventually, if I have time, suggest uh, perhaps a fourth model, which I don't want to attribute to Aristotle himself, but uh, which I think can be uh, inspired by some of his uh, remarks on uh, metaperceptual phenomena. So is my plan, again, maybe uh, I will skip some of, some of it. I will introduce uh, what I call Aristotle claim. I will talk a little bit about uh, familiar distinction between intentional modes and content. And then I will introduce the three models I will discuss with Aristotle's own account. Uh, so a model based on introspection, a model based on reflection, and a model based on reflection. I'm not sure <laughs> the distinction was um, was made orally at least. Uh, and then I will I will say something about what I see as the fourth possible model of the way we know of our own sensory experiences, which well I call the practical model for obvious reasons. You will see, uh, and then I will talk about uh, the way we distinguish, for instance, vision from from touch or audition very briefly uh, before concluding the talk. So we enjoy visual or the auditory experiences, but we can also be aware of enjoying them, or that we enjoy them. I won't make a big difference between these ways of uh, describing uh, the relevant phenomena. And Aristotle's famous claim is that this meta-awareness is, is perceptual. It is, is genuinely perceptual as opposed to intellectual or toxastic, or something like that. In other words, uh, we have a capacity of meta-perception. So we perceive that we see, we perceive that we hear, perhaps we perceive that we see and hear, and so on and so forth. We perceive that, that, that we see something, we perceive that we see the sky, we perceive that we hear uh, some noise, and so on and so forth. Okay, So that's uh, almost, I, I think, a quotation from a famous passage in, in the, the De Anima. And of course, I mean, that, that is not Aristotle's own way of uh, talking, but I mean, uh, Aristotle's claim could also be formulated, perhaps a little bit, uh, I mean, we're not obliged to formulate uh, it in epistemological terms, but if we do it, so we are going to say that uh, we have metaperceptual experiences that would constitute evidence for re re what, what, what we call reflective judgments of the form I am seeing, or I am seeing the sky. Okay, judgments with meta-representational contents, contents about visual mental states, visual episodes, auditory episodes, and so on and so forth. Okay. So meta-perceptual experiences would constitute evidence for these reflective judgments, which uh, entails that, if you wish, the, the contents 
of these judgments are inherited from the contents of metaperceptual experiences, whether or not these judgments are actually formed by the subject, by the perceiver. Aristotle, as is, is well known, I mean, attributes the relevant metaperceptual capacity to what he calls common sense. And in fact, common sense is part of the title, but I won't talk much about it. I just mentioned that here. I mean, as Aristotle writes here, I mean, there's a certain common capacity that supervenes on the others by which one perceives that one is seeing and hearing. Or it's surely not by sight that one sees that one sees. And it's certainly not by taste or sight or both together that one discerns or is, or is even capable of discerning that sweet things are different from pale ones, but rather by a certain part common to all the sense organs. By the way, you can see that the common sense has several functions in Aristotle. There will be other talks about uh, some of the other functions of the common sense, but certainly attributes to the common sense the, the, the capacity to uh, have uh, metaperceptual experiences. And indeed, Aristotle seems to have made a more specific claim about the nature of the relevant metaperception. He seems to have, to have held that we perceive by sight that we see, or we perceive by audition that we hear. So in other words, the very same faculty, the very same capacity that we use to see in this sight can be used to perceive that we see. Now, of course, the interpretation of this claim, A2, is very controversial, as I remarked in, in trying to read the, the relevant literature. And in fact, these different authors have, have different views about the interpretation of that claim. But certainly that claim, in some sense, is, is something that Aristotle uh, seems to have held. And since Aristotle allows that one can perceive something by sight without seeing it, so one can perceive the sky, one can perceive, I will, I will give examples later, one can perceive something by sight without seeing it, he can consistently deny that we see that we see. So his claim is not that we see that we see, his claim is that we can, we can perceive by sight that we see. So what, what's exercised in visual metaperception, for instance, is the common function of sight rather than its uh, spe special function, which is to, for instance, to see colored things. And now, brief methodological uh, uh, caveat. Aristotle claim is a claim about, as I will uh, discuss it uh, here, is a claim about the nature of our self-awareness of sensory experiences, the way we know of the fact that we see, hear, taste, touch, and so on. As such, I mean, these uh, claims, A1 and A2, uh, do not embody a general theory of consciousness. Okay? Th that's a point that is sometimes neglected in the literature. So it's one, one thing to say that we are metaperceptually aware of our own sensory experiences, and it's another thing to say that uh, this metaperception is what makes sensory experiences conscious. And of course, that's a bolder claim, which it might well be ascribed to Aristotle. That's a different issue. But these are two different claims. Okay, so uh, the distinction between intentional modes and content is a familiar distinction in philosophy of mind, which is not to say that all philosophers of mind accept that distinction, or accept that they, they are mode and content are separable aspects of a given mental state. But at the conceptual level, at least, we can distinguish between two aspects of uh, an intentional mental state, 
namely what's uh, often called its uh, intentional or psychological mode. For instance, the fact that it is a belief or visual experience or hope or desire, for instance, and its contents, whether the content is, is, is construed as uh, uh, representational content or not. I will not talk much about that here. So what is presented or what is represented uh, by the mental states or in having the mental states. So for instance, the same mode can be associated with different contents, it seems. Uh, so we can, for instance, believe that it's going to rain or believe that it's going to be sunny. Okay, so same mode, belief, but different uh, contents. Uh, or maybe the same content can be associated with different modes. Okay, so for instance, I can believe that it's going to rain or I can hope that it's going to rain. So different uh, types of mental states, different modes, but same uh, content. But given the distinction between mode and content, uh, Aristotle's claim can be rephrased as follows. As follows. In A3, we perceive some of or all of the modal properties of our sensory experiences. So by modal properties here, I don't mean properties having to do with necessity or possibility. Um, I, I, I only mean aspects of the intentional mode of the relevant uh, mental state. So why A3 is a plausible claim? Uh, well, because certainly full-blooded metaperception is not needed to know what we are seeing or hearing. So metaperception is not needed to uh, uh, know uh, the contents of our sensory experiences. So when Aristotle claims that we perceive that we see or hear, he can't merely mean that we perceive the contents of our sensory experiences. So he must have meant that we have somehow perceptual access to modal properties of our sensory experiences. Whether or not these modal properties are in fact dependent on uh, contentful uh, properties as well, that's, that's a different issue. And let me distinguish here, because I will uh, need uh, this three-way distinction later, uh, between three types of modal, three grades, if you wish, of modal properties, uh, from the more general to the more specific, so first, there are properties that make a given experience a case of perception, rather than, for instance, belief or imagination or memory. So for instance, why psychologists call uh, source monitoring is the capacity to, to know whether a given content comes from memory or imagination, for instance. So probably the relevant source monitoring mechanisms are sensitive to properties of the first type that makes but make a given experience a case of perception rather than imagination or memory. And then, more specifically, you can have, I mean, the mental state have as, as properties that make it a case of vision, for instance, as opposed to audition or touch. And even more specifically, and the third type of modal properties are neglected in contemporary philosophy of perception, which is a shame, I think. These are properties having to do with, let's say, the quality of the experience. That is, whether the experience is optimal uh, in some respects, or maybe the strength of the perceptual response, or something like that. So I will give uh, so, so some other examples um, of the third type of modal property later on, but let me just give what is hopefully a, an intuitive example of that uh, kind of uh, modal properties. Consider a situation in which I faintly see a horse in the mist. Okay, so 
uh, I don't see clearly because I'm in the mist. Uh, but but my visual recognition mechanisms are activated in such a way as I'm tempted to form the judgments that there is a horse in front of me. But the quality of my visual experience is not very good. It's not it's suboptimal, if you wish. So what I say is that uh, I faintly see the horse in the mist. That's my reflective judgment on my experience. Okay. And you might say that uh, in my um, self-description of the experience, the adverb faintly, uh, in fact, modifies the verb, the perceptual verb, see, rather than the content of my thing. It's not that I'm seeing a faint horse. Okay? It's my visual experience, which is faint. Faintness, if you wish, is a modal property of my visual experience, over and above the fact that my visual experience is about the horse. Okay? So that, that would be a an example of the third kind of uh, model property. Okay, so what's the nature of this uh, meta-perceptual experience? Uh, is it a case of introspection? Is it a case of reflection? So let's see. So one, one model that can be referred to at this point is, is the introspective model, which has been described by some authors to Aristotle. And very schematically, of course, because I don't have time to uh, go into details. So here you have three token mental episodes. Okay, you have a reflective judgment which might be there or or not. Okay, so that's a situation in which the subject uh, forms a reflective judgments on the basis of a metaperceptual experience. But what it, what's important is that the first order sensory experience, let's say visual experience, is the intentional object of a second order introspective experience. And the reflective judgment, I see or I see the sky, is evidentially grounded on the second order experience. The reflective judgment uh, takes its content from the content of the introspective experience. So the content of the first order visual experience it ca can be, I don't know, th there's a horse in front of me, maybe. Or there's a horse in front, let's say. And the second order perception would have as its content something more complex. Namely, uh, I'm seeing, or I'm, uh, it visually seems to me as if the horse uh, is or were present, something like that. And the reflective judgment can take on this discomfort. Okay, so meta-perception might be just the capacity to form second-order uh, experiences, uh, just like in this, this schema. Now, th there are several objections to the introspective model as, as I mean, independently of Aristotle. Uh, which has been which have been discussed in contemporary philosophy of mind. Here are just two objections among uh, others. There's the no inner object objects objection, so to speak, which according to which, since there's nothing like inner object perception, at least in case in, in the case of sensory experiences, namely uh, when I introspect, it doesn't seem to me that. I have an experience from the inside of a mental object, which would be my visual experience. There's no mental objects, which is the intentional object of my metaperceptual experience. And if you hold that the capacity of perception is or entails the capacity of object perception, maybe there's something like fact perception, but fact perception is should be grounded on object perception. If there's no possibility of object perception, there's, there's no perception at all. Okay, that would be the, the objection. 
So there's no inner object perception, so there's no, at least in the case of sensory experiences, there might be uh, other cases in which, I mean, the notion of an inner object perception makes sense. Uh, but in the case of sensory experiences, it doesn't make sense. A visual experience not, does not appear to me as an object. So we should get rid of the introspective model as applied to sensory experiences. And a related objection uh, is also very well known, which it is transparency objection. When I try to introspect my current visual experience, all I'm aware of is the, the content of the visual experience that I'm seeing. No property over and above the contents of our sensory experiences seems to be, to be available to introspection according to that objection. No, indeed, I mean, uh, apart from these objections, uh, the introspective model does not square well with another claim that Aristotle apparently made, which is that any first order sensory experience entails some meta-perceptuality. So conscious sensory experience comes with, essentially comes with, uh, some meta-perceptual monitoring of these experiences. Apart if monitoring smacks too much of the introspective model, uh, let's say that any first order sensory experience is or involves some meta-perception. And indeed Aristotle seems to have said that has said that it's not possible to be unaware of perceiving and seeing something seen. Okay, so meta-perception seems to be uh, always there, so to speak. Which is slightly at odds with the introspective model because on the standard way of construing the introspective model, the meta-perceptual experience is a distinct token from the first order sensory experience. Two tokens. So distinct existences in Hume's uh, sense. So, of course, according to that model, the first order sensory experiences, experience can exist without any meta-perception, in contradiction to uh, Aristotle's claim. Moreover, I mean, the famous regress argument in the anima uh, can be interpreted in a conditional way. So if our sensory experience were the object of another introspective experience, then given A4, given the fact that any sensory experience is essentially accompanied by some meta-perception, either there would be an infinite chain of embedded experiences or some experience would be of itself. That's Aristotle's formulation, which suggests that separate introspection is not the key to the recovery. So the second model is the reflective model. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a model which is much more, more recent in the philosophy of mind. And it's a model which dispenses entirely with introspection. Okay. So here you have only two token mental states. You have the reflective judgment, which again might be formed uh, or might not be formed. The reflective judgment is in a sense directly based on the first order of perception, but it's not grounded on the first order perception, or not fully grounded, which means that the content of the reflective judgments goes beyond the contents of the first order perception. The reflective judgment I see the sky, for instance, uh, would be on this model a, a kind of direct reflection on the first order experience, without the mediation of intermediary second order experience, second order perception. Again, I'm, I'm, I apologize, I, I have to go fast here, but what are called ascent routines in the philosophy of mind, namely uh, methods of self-ascription of belief, can be uh, transposed to a perceptual experience. And indeed, ascent routines were suggested by Gareth Evans, who, in these famous quotes, I mean, if someone asks me, do you think or do you believe that there is, there is going to be a third world war, I must attend in answering him, not to my inner life, 
but to precisely the same outward phenomena as I would attend to if I were answering the question, the object level question, will there be a verb or not? I get myself in a position to answer the question whether I believe that P by putting into operation whatever procedure I have for answering the question with a P. Okay, so no introspection needed here. Uh, I, I, I answer first all the question and my answer can be uh, transposed to an answer to a second order question that I believe that there is going to be a third. So I directly reflect on my belief. I don't need introspection to do that. In fact, Evans himself suggested that the same procedure, but something like it, can be uh, applied to self-ascription of sensory experience. So he, he wrote, I mean, the subject goes through exactly the same procedure as he would go through if he were trying to make judgments about how it is at this place now, but excluding any knowledge he has of an extraneous kind. Okay, he's, he's, he's focusing on visual contacts, not anything he knows about what he's currently seeing. That is, he seeks to determine what he would judge if he did not have such extraneous information. Okay. By the way, it assumes that the subject knows the distinction, I mean, how to draw the distinction between information that is part of perceptual content and information that is not part of perceptual content, but is provided by background beliefs or by a theory about what he is currently seeing. And it's not obvious that the subject, the naive subject, can, uh, in fact, draw that distinction, but that, that's another story. In general, proponents of uh, the reflective model take very serious, seriously both the knowing object objection and the transparency objection. And indeed, on the reflective model, there's no need for an experiential awareness of the modal properties of the first order experience. In a sense, awareness of modes reduces to awareness of content. So, so there's no perceptual awareness of modal properties of one's sensory experiences. Except if these modal properties entirely reduce to uh, semantic properties, properties having to do with the contents of the relevant sensory experiences. And as I said, it's a non-evidentialist conception because, of course, I mean, uh, what, what, what one can't infer that I'm seeing the sky from the visual presence of the sky. That's not an inference. If it's, it would be very it would be a very invalid inference. Okay. There's the sky does not entail I'm seeing the sky. But that's what reflection enables me to, to do. You need to go beyond the contents of my first order visual experience without any other source of knowledge, so to speak, without any experiential source of knowledge. That might be a problem for uh, the reflective model, but I mean, that's, it's a problem for certain authors. But it's a virtue for uh, some defenders of uh, the reflective model. And in fact, although the reflective model can acknowledge that in a sense it's by sight that we know that we see, okay, I use my sight and no other, no other source of knowledge to know that I'm seeing, it can't be invoked as interpretation of Aristotle. Because on this model, the first order sensory experience is meta-perceptual only in a quite minimal sense in the sense that the subject can reflect on his or her first-order visual experience. So it's meta-perceptual only from the point of view of the judging subject, so to speak. So from an Aristotelian point of view, uh, this means that the relevant meta-perceptual knowledge comes too late. And in, in that sense, the reflective model would be intellectualist on this uh, Aristotelian point of view. 
Because Aristotle seems to have held a further claim, which is that meta-perception is not uh, unique to humans, but is available to uh, non-human animals. Perhaps all of them, perhaps some of them. And we can safely assume that at least some of the relevant species can't form judgments with meta-representational contents like I see and hear, which of course uh, presuppose the mastery of the concept of seeing, the concept of visual experience. Okay? And perhaps it's not, it's something which is controversial in cognitive science, but perhaps only humans have the capacity to form meta-representational contents of this kind. Now, since Aristotle ascribed metaperception to non-human animals, he must have had in mind something uh, which takes place at the predoxastic level, okay? not at the level of judgments with their fully explicit meta-representational contents, but, but, but at the level of experience. So the third model, which is, in fact, th this model uh, is also like the introspective model uh, often ascribed to Aristotle, the reflexive model is just like the reflective model, except for, for this arrow here. But the idea would be that uh, my first order visual experience, for instance, has two intentional objects. Okay? It is primarily directed on the perceived object, on the sky, for instance, but also secondarily directed on itself. Okay? There's a so-called secondary intentionality of the first order sensory experience. And it's not crystal clear in all versions of the reflexive model, but on this model, the reflective judgment, I'm seeing the sky, is evidentially grounded on the first order experience. Okay, so this, the secondary intentionality gives additional contents to uh, judgments. The contents that not only that there's a, a sky, but that I'm seeing the sky. So the, the O explains why I can form a reflective judgment, I'm seeing the sky, on the basis of my visual experience and nothing else, no introspective, no, no uh, distinct introspective experience in that uh, model. And there's indeed evidence that Aristotle defended something like the reflexive model as a general account of conscious intentional phenomena. So in one translation, he wrote that it seems that knowing, perceiving, believing and thinking, so it's not specific to perception, as you see, are always of something else, I mean the, the primary intentionality, but of themselves on the side, so secondary intentionality. However, e even if the reflexive model is the correct interpretation of Aristotle's official view of self-knowledge self of experience, uh, in the remainder of the talk I would like to suggest that some of his remarks point to a different model, whether or not he fully endorsed uh, that fourth model. And eventually I want to suggest um, won't be able to do it uh, today, but I would like to suggest that this model is more plausible and realistic given recent empirical work on metacognition and in particular metaperception. So first note that on most versions of the reflexive model, it's only by seeing the sky that we perceive or have access to our seeing the sky. So in other words, secondary intentionality is stepwise, so to speak, uh, in the sense that it depends on primary intentionality. So that's a conceptual point, that's maybe an ontological point, but it also surfaces at the level of phenomenology, because very often secondary intentionality is often pictures, pictured as marginal relative to the focality of primary intentionality. 
So I'm seeing that glass and marginally I'm conscious of seeing that glass. Okay, but of course the notion of marginality is relative to, uh, let's say, the focality of my visual experience of the glass. Okay, so you have a, a kind of phenological dependence here between uh, secondary and primary intentionality. However, some of Aristotle's remarks suggest that meta-perception, in some cases at least, is not stepwise. That is, I mean, uh, enjoys a certain kind of autonomy relative to the first order sensory experience. So that would be A6. I'm not sure I, I want to ascribe uh, that to Aristotle, but we'll see. Uh, I mean, you, I'm sure you're going to correct me on that point. But the idea would be that meta perception is uh, at least sometimes autonomous relative to the first order sensory experience. And autonomy here can be uh, interpreted in two ways. Meta perception can operate independently of the contents of the visual experience. That would be the, the weak version, if you wish, of A6. And a stronger version would be that meta perception can operate even in the absence of first order experience, which would be a different, of course, stronger claim. So c consider the an example an example that Aristotle gives, which concerns uh, the perception of darkness. So in the anima he says it's clear that to perceive by sight is not one thing. For even when we don't see, we discriminate by sight, darkness and light, although not in the same way. I mean, <laughs> the interpretation of this passage is, is difficult, but I mean, one idea would be th this. I mean, there's a sense in which darkness is invisible. Darkness can't be a primary intentional object of visual experience, because darkness has no color, for instance. So what, what can't, one can't see darkness. But what, one can perceive darkness by sight, by, by using one's sight, okay? Although we don't see anything, because we are in a pitch black room, okay? So there's, there's an interpretation, a meta, metacognitive interpretation, a metaperceptual interpretation of that example in, in Gregoric's book on the common sense. And Gregoric says that the, the common function of sight can make us aware of the activity of one's senses, okay? also the in inactivity of one sense. In, in the case of darkness, you perceive that you don't see. You perceive that your visual sense is inactive. And given this, Gregory seems to infer what's in fact the strong version of A6, what I call the strong version of A6, namely in, in his own terms, uh, that second-order perception don't always accompany first-order perceptions. First-order perceptions entails some second-order perception, but there are second-order perceptions which are not accompanied by any first-order perception. Of course, we, we, we might disagree with uh, Gregory here, and we might uh, suggest that even when we are in the dark and don't see anything, our visual sense may still be, some, may, may still be somehow active. Okay? So maybe, maybe, for instance, we're, we're trying to see something, or maybe we're doing something with our eyes, which in, in some sense engages our visual sense. Maybe we don't have a sensory experience, but we have some kind of pre-sensory experience or something like that. Anyway, maybe in that case, some experience would be monitored after all by metaperception. So it's not like metaperception is a, 
is, is not accompanied by any first order experience. Maybe it's not a full blown sensory experience because we don't see after all, but it's something like pre-sensory experience. Okay. But in any case, the, the relevant point is that uh, what we are inclined to describe as object level visual perception of darkness is in fact meta-perception of not seeing anything. And of course, analogous remarks in other sensory modalities, silence for instance, might be made. And quite independently of, of working on this talk, in fact, I wrote a, a little paper on the perception of absences. Okay. Maybe you remember in Sartre, when I have an appointment with my friend Pierre and I go into a cafe, and Pierre is not there. So Sartre says, I'm perceiving the absence of Pierre. Okay. So I argue that, in fact, uh, the perception of the absence of Pierre is, in fact, a meta-perception. It's, it's, it's the perception of the absence of a perception of Pierre. So the absence of Pierre is not the primary intentional object of my visual experience in that case. I'm sensitive to my visual expectations, okay, but that's a metacognitive, meta-perceptual achievement, not something which is, which has to be built into the contents of my visual experience. So maybe we can use these, these insights about perceiving darkness, whether or not, I mean, that particular example works, in order to, to think of another way of construing meta-perception. First, let me remark that uh, recent cognitive science has shown that humans and many species of non-human animals possess various, various kinds of metacognitive abilities which are low level in the sense that they fall short of being meta-representational. Uh, various animals have metacognitive abilities. I will give some examples uh, in, a, in, in a while, in a minute. Uh, but they don't, they lack the capacity to form mental representations as of other mental representations. So they lack so-called theory of mind or meta-representational abilities. But still they can monitor and control their own uh, cognitive processes in quite sophisticated ways uh, in some cases. So many of these abilities involve subpersonal monitoring mechanisms that are sensitive to the fluency. So fluency is the magic magical word in uh, research on metacognition and cognitive science. Okay, so the, the fluency of cognitive processes has to do with the, the ease with which a mental operation is performed. Okay. And we have monitoring mechanisms sensitive to whether, <coughs> for instance, visual processes are going along well or whether we have difficulties in, in seeing something uh, and so on and so forth. But we can be sensitive to the fluency of uh, conceptual inferences as well. So psychologists distinguish between perceptual and conceptual fluency, for instance, uh, in various uh, domains. So take, for instance, metamemory. Metamemory is one of the fields which uh, launched the research on metacognition. Sometimes we know that we know the answer to a question, even if we are temporarily unable to produce the relevant answer. Okay, so someone asks me, what's the capital of uh, Peru? And of course I know that, but uh, I can't actually give now, I can't produce the relevant answer, Lima. Okay. Maybe I have a tip of the tongue experience, maybe, maybe I mean, I have the name on the tip of my tongue, so I know that I know in some sense, but I, I, I can't actually produce, uh, pronounce the, the word uh, Lima. And Asher Koryat, one of the psychologists, uh, one of the leading psychologists in studies 
metacognition, argues that our metamemory knowledge, in this case, relies on, I, I quote, contentless mnemonic cues that pertain to the quality of processing, in particular the fluency with which information is encoded and retrieved. Okay. So, for instance, the fluency of, of the very attempt to remember the name, even if the attempt is unsuccessful now, or the fluency of retrieval of partial information. I know that the name starts with a, an F, for instance, bit. so I know something about the name, and my brain uses the, the fact that I can retrieve part of the information as a cue that I will be able to retrieve the whole information in the, in the near future. What's important for our purposes is that, is that fluency is a non-semantic property of cognitive processes. Okay, so monitoring mechanisms are not sensitive to the contents of our cognitive processes, whether visual or conceptual, intellectual. They are just sensitive to the way these processes are formed okay, and go, go along. These are non-semantic properties. Maybe these, these, these uh, non-semantic properties are correlated with uh, semantic properties. In fact, they are. Some, some of them are. But they are not sensitive to semantic properties as such of cognitive processes. That would be meta-representation. That won't, that won't be, uh, that wouldn't be low-level metacognition. In particular, I mean, our meta-memory knowledge need not monitor the, the memory trace itself. Okay, so you might have a tip of the tongue experience, uh, but in fact, you don't have the relevant first-order memory. Okay? You don't remember the name of uh, the capital of Peru, for instance. In the domain of perception, too, there's a host of evidence about the existence of low-level metacognitive abilities. For instance, uh, research on uncertainty monitoring shows that uh, some non-human animals are sensitive to uh, the optimality of sensory experiences with respect to a perceptual category. So there's a series of nice experiments about uh, the capacity of some animals to monitor their own uncertainty states, perceptual uncertainty states. For instance, they have to categorize some stimulus as sparse or as, as dense. I mean, uh, we have a set of, of points on the screen, and the animal has to press a button when it's sparse, press another button when it's dense. But some, some, some conditions allow the animals to use a third button, which is, I'm not sure. Okay. And some animals can use that button in borderline cases of sparse and dense patterns. Uh, and, and some animals don't, can't, can't use that uncertainty response. So some animals can monitor their own uncertainty states in, in an adaptive, adaptive ways. That is, they, they can reduce mistakes that they would they would make in forced choice condition if they had only the choice of pressing the sparse or the dense uh, keys. So an important question is whether monitoring mechanisms can be conceived as, if you wish, <laughs> grounding conscious introspection of modal properties of our mental states. For instance, might might argue that the subject knowledge that she knows what the capital of Peru is, what the capital of Peru is, uh, is based on introspecting the first-order memory state independently of accessing its own content. You might say when you have a tip-of-the-tongue experience, you know that you know. In fact, you have access to a memory state, uh, first-order memory state, with, 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 with the content, Lima is the capital of Peru. 
except that of course you don't have access to uh, the whole contents of that memory state. So there's one way of interpreting Rosen David Rosenthal's uh, quotation here as uh, defending the claim that monitoring is introspection. In fact. So he, he writes, I mean, when I have Mark Twain's real name on the tip of my tongue, I must be conscious of the particular state that carries that information. That's introspection. It's, it's, it's a form of introspection. But I'm not conscious of that state in respect of the specific information the state carries. Rather, I'm conscious of the state only as a state that carries that information. So maybe I, I'm conscious of the memory state, but not of the fact that the memory state has the content. Samuel Clemens is Mark Twain's real name. But I don't think it's the right uh, way of understanding monitoring. Okay. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that, in fact, Rosenthal is is endorsing uh, the introspective interpretation of monitoring. There's reason to think that the outputs of monitoring are not conscious. I mean, monitoring uh, is a subpersonal achievement, and the outputs of monitoring are only exploited by control mechanisms. When psychologists talk about metacognition, there are two phases. Meta monitoring, uh, fluency, for instance, and control, changing something about your first level uh, cognitive processes. For instance, uncertainty monitoring results in behavior such as moving one's head from side to side, whose function is to optimize the subject's sensory experience, that is to resolve visual ambiguity. Something that even pigeons can, can do. When you're not sure of what you're seeing, then you, you move your head. It's, a, it's a spontaneous behavior. That, that's the way in which monitoring, uh, the, the results of monitoring are exploited by the subject. I mean, it surfaces in spontaneous behavior or activity relevant to the optimization of the subject's sensory experience. So given that monitoring remains below the surface of personal level psychology, an exercise of the relevant metacognitive ability is best conceived as an instance of practical knowledge. The subject knows how to get herself in a better epistemic position with, with respect to the external object. In ex exercising a practical knowledge, she need not have direct conscious access to the modal properties of her sensory experience. Of course, she can make it explicit that, that piece of practical knowledge <coughs> at the level of judgment. So she can say something like, I see a horse, but only faintly. I won't talk about feelings here much, but I mean, the subject, the human subject in David Smith experiments I, I alluded to before, use the vocabulary of feeling. Okay, they say, I felt uncertain about whether the pattern was dense or sparse. They referred to their feelings. Or you can simply say, I see a horse, but only faintly. But that's a way of articulating one's practical knowledge, if you wish. It's not a way of grounding, evidentially grounding, uh, one's judgment on uh, an introspective experience of the quality of one's visual experience. So that's why I call that, that the practical the practical model involved the idea of meta-perception, but only as a subpersonal level. Okay. So meta-perception is achieved by subpersonal monitoring mechanisms. So I'm almost uh, done. So, of course, you might acknowledge the role of the practical model in explaining of we are, uh, how we are aware of some model properties of our sensory experiences, but insist that the self-knowledge Aristotle was mainly interested in 
is of a different kind, but that's a perfectly coherent, of course, uh, reaction. And you might even think of a kind of division of labor. You might think that the practical model works well with very specific model properties uh, of type 3, perhaps including darkness case. Okay, so for instance, the stability of your perceptual response is one of the cues for the brain to uh, produce behavior in order to restore the optimality of your visual experience, for instance. Okay, so that would be a, a way of being sensitive, a practical way of being sens sensitive to a model property of type 3. But you might say that the reflexive model is still an option for model properties of types 1 and 2. Right? What makes an experience a case of perception rather than belief, what makes uh, a the experience a case of vision rather than addition, uh, and so on and so forth. But a more ambitious claim would be that our knowledge that we perceive or see is also practical. Okay, so we can explain our self-awareness of the fact that our experience is perceptual and even visual uh, by uh, reference to the practical uh, model. We, that will be very sketchy because I'm, I'm coming to the end. But we know how to act in order to improve the quality of uh, our ex experience in each sensory modality. So there are things we can do which work in more than one sensory modality. For instance, getting closer to the stimulus uh, works well with vision and audition, presumably. But th there are ways to um, improve uh, vision which are not ways of improving audition. So removing an obstacle might improve my vision of the cat behind the fence or behind the suitcase, but it may not improve my audition of the cat. Okay, so there are ways to improve uh, one's uh, sensory experiences, which are, let's say, characteristic of each sensory modality. So maybe we know that we see because we know that we are looking, or we know how to do to maintain or change or improve uh, our visual experience. That would be good. And indeed, the idea under consideration, which is very sketchy here, is close to the inactivist claim that knowledge that one sees is based on knowledge of so-called sensory motor contingencies, distinctive of the, of the visual sense modality. So Oregon and Noe gives the example, if, if, of, of course, if I do this, so visual stimulation stops. Okay, so there's um, some, so, some of my sensations become uniform. And I, if I do that, then, uh, of course, uh, I have new uh, sensation and so on and so forth. So I know that sensory motor contingency. I know that if I do that, there will be characteristic change in my visual sensations, in my sensations, to cool. And if I do that, there will be an improvement uh, of my uh, visual experience. So both the inactivist and the present accounts acknowledge the fact that our awareness of sensory experience is practical. That's a quotation from uh, Oregon and Noe a paper in Behavioral and Brain Sciences. Visual experience is a mode of activity involving practical knowledge about currently possible behaviors and associated sensory consequences. Visual experience rests on know-how, the possessions, possession of skills. Of course, what I'm suggesting here is very close to that idea, except that I insist that metamorphosis monitoring uh, is content independent, mostly you know, in a way in which an activism might not be 
ready to acknowledge. That is, I may not always know in advance the sensory consequences of what am I doing to improve my seeing, but I can still know that I see just by engaging these characteristic control activities. That's my access to the fact that my experience is a visual experience, for instance, as opposed to an auditory experience and so on. So brief conclusion. So in contrast to both introspective and reflexive model, the practical model is not evidentialist. Okay, so the reflective judgment is, like in the reflective model, a direct ref reflection of a piece of practical knowledge. But the practical knowledge that does not have as its content, I'm seeing the sky. Okay, that's something which surfaces only at the level of the judgment. But there's meta-perception already at the, the level of experience, of course, because uh, meta-perception is pre-doxastic. Okay, it operates independently of judgments, independently of uh, formation of judgments. And in fact, the knowledge uh, of one's own sensory experiences is primarily, primarily realized in uh, control, spontaneous control mechanisms. And now, of course, you can make two further claims, which, at least as far as the first is concerned, are, to my mind, plausible. You might say that at least some meta-perceptual abilities are integral, I mean, constitutive of conscious sensory experience. You might say there's no seeing without looking, for instance. There's no conscious seeing without looking is just one way of controlling one's visual experience, of course by maintaining the contact with a given object, for instance. So the idea would be that there's no conscious experience without some inbuilt ability to monitor and control the quality of the experience. And another bolder claim, which I think might be envisaged as well, is that meta-perception is what makes our sensory experiences conscious. So that would be an high-order theory of consciousness, if you wish, but the high-order states which is supposed to make the first-order state conscious is not a judgment, is not something which has meta-representation content. Okay? It's one's practical knowledge of one's own sensory modalities. So Aristotle may be right that it's by sight that we can know at least some of the modal properties of our visual experience. Literally. Literally by sight. However, perhaps in contradiction to uh, what seems to be the official interpretation of Aristotle, namely that he defended something like a reflexive view, Flexive model, we don't perceive these properties. At least if perceived refers here to personal level perception. So monitoring is not conscious perception. Monitoring of the quality of one's experience is not uh, conscious perceiving these, consciously perceiving these. Uh, rather, our self-knowledge in, in that case is practical rather than theoretical because it manifests itself not in judgments but in spontaneous control activities. And that's all. Thank you very much.